You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. Today, Swiss watches, particularly the handcrafted mechanical variety, lauded for their precision and pedigree, have become synonymous with luxury. You may not know this, but Britain was once the cradle of fine watchmaking. In fact, in the 17th and 18th centuries, pretty much every concept that you find in a modern Swiss watch was developed primarily in England. Over the past decade, watchmaking in the UK has come back in a big way and giving their Swiss and German counterparts a run for their money. One British luxury watchmaker, Bremont, has been in the forefront of reinvigorating the nation's horological past when it launched its collection of highly developed aviation-inspired timepieces in 2007 after five years in development. My guest today on The Luxury Item is Nick English, co-founder of Bremont Watch Company, which manufactures its mechanical watches in Henley-on-Thames, England. He and his co-founder brother Giles have made a substantial impact on the watchmaking industry in a very short period of time. The Bremont watch family comprises a range of chronometer-tested chronograph and non-chronograph watches, including a number of special edition models, and remains true to its original principles of aviation and military and British engineering and adventure. Bremont watches are sold all over the world through high-end jewelers and Bremont's own boutiques. The brand has won numerous awards and has attracted celebrity clients such as Tom Cruise, Harrison Ford, Tom Hardy, and Orlando Bloom. Welcome to the luxury item, Nick. Well, Scott, thank you so very much for having me. It's an absolute honor to be on it. Oh, I'm so thrilled to have you on. It's so much, so much exciting news coming out of Braemont these days. You know, finally, you have a proprietary Made in England watch movement, new Longitude LE collection watches, and your brand new watchmaking facility, The Wing, which we'll talk about these things, but I'm, I'm catching with a good time. A lot of good things going on there. We try. We try, Scott. As, um, it's true, this, this last year and a half, we, we haven't really been standing sort of still. Um, we really have been running around trying to uh, do as much as we can, but it's sort of part of a, a longer dream we've had for a while. So, yeah, it's a perfect time to actually have this conversation, really. You know, for our audience who may not know Bremont, the Bremont name and the company's origins really stems from a fascinating story. Would you mind sharing the story of how the brand came about? Of course, of course, of course. So, um, yeah, so I founded the business of my co-founder of a business of my brother Giles back in 2002 but I, I guess if you had to look at you know where the brand began and where it started our passion it would have been with our father in the workshop um, many many years before and uh, he was a yeah, wonderful man incredible man sort of read engineering aeronautics at uh, Cambridge he did his PhD in it as well so he's a, he's a great mind but also he's amazing with his hands and so our time in the workshop will be spent um restoring old planes cars motorbikes um but also clocks and that was a big passion of him and of his and the other passion um and you can see the sort of bit of the dna running through the brand is this uh aviation as well and he'll be doing we're all sponsored through university by the air force but he did a, a you know chunk more than us really and um did a lot of air show flying and uh where weekends would be dragged along to, to these air shows. And, and uh, it was sort of one of these practice air shows. My brother and I got into flying in a big way in our teens and early 20s. And then it was during one of these sort of practice air displays in 1995, where I had a sort of nasty plane crash and my father, something went wrong. 
with the aircraft and we ended up uh, crashing it. And um, it's, yeah, he sadly died in it, um, which is pretty awful. And mm-hmm. I smashed myself up quite badly. I was in intensive care for quite a few weeks. And, and I think Giles and I, we see that as a sort of a bit of a tipping point in our life. Our careers changed you know, enormously at that point. And life suddenly became very, very short. And uh, uh, the passions that were being sort of instilled in us through our father and just a sort of general love of engineering and things that went with that um, suddenly were set off in motion, I guess, shortly after that. You know, most watch brands are started by people with personal interest in watches. And we already knew you were a passionate aviator. So before starting Braemont, what was your interest in the world of horology? It was purely um, sort of, uh, I suppose, hobbyist, really. I mean, my first um, foray into it was sort of talking to our father a lot um, and seeing him restore these old clocks uh, in our workshop. And um, he, he had an incredible, you know, knack and passion for doing that. And we'd talk about the history of British watchmaking, which you alluded to earlier on. And so that was all ingrained and he had a lovely collection well lovely to us in terms of they meant so much I mean nothing particularly special but uh, um, some lovely vintage mechanical watches which you know we, we, we used to talk about and look at and you know there's nothing more important as a little boy as your dad's watch really it means right. so much to you and uh, so that that was one part but also in my far my my father was this engineer my grandfather was this incredible heart surgeon um, and inventor and invented the ventilator and things like that and um, I remember one of my first school projects at the age of 12, and it was to design a time machine um, for the whole school was sort of into <laughs> this competition. And, and uh, you know, 99.9% of people came in with a plastic bottle with a hole drilled out of the bottom and timelines up the side <laughs> with water running out. And I came with this massive, great mechanical clock with a big fan on it and cogs and gears. And, um, and I think that was just the sort of where the passion really started from, from those two guys, really. Did it, did it work, Nick? It was accurate. Okay, the time was, machine. We, had to, we had to be accurate uh, as a five minute test. And I think I was three seconds off in five minutes, which for a homemade thing um, in your garage isn't too bad, is it? <laughs> you know, Britain has been building watches and clocks since the 1500s and have made some groundbreaking discoveries, yet it has not been widely recognized as a watchmaking nation. Other countries like Switzerland have taken the lead within the watchmaking industry over the course of the centuries. How did British watchmakers let that slip through their hands? Was it just the Swiss were just better at branding? Uh, you, know, as, you know, I could talk for hours about that. that should be a whole nother podcast because I'm quite <laughs> passionate about how that's got. But um, you know, what, what happened, obviously, you know, as you said, 15th, 16th, 17th century, we had um, you know, the whole conundrum of telling the time at sea and uh, Greenwich and the first chronometers and a lot of the innovation, 50% of the innovation, any mechanical watch came from British shores and the turn of last century, 50% of all clocks and pocket watches and things came from, from the UK. So there is this amazing history, but I think um, a couple of things happened, two major things. One was um, we didn't adapt, you know, for us, we had this worshipful company of watchmakers where, you know, it was laid down by King Charles and, you had a, effectively a warrant to make watches. And, and if you weren't up to the standard, you'd have this taken away and you weren't allowed to make them. Um, and so we always had this artisanal approach to watchmaking where you got a handful of incredible watchmakers making a handful of watches a year. And we're very, very good at that. Um, and we still see it today in the UK a bit. 
Um, what the Swiss did, which was something we just didn't really adapt to in the UK, was they took the sort of Henry Ford model of cars to watches and they said, actually, we can make a fine watch, but actually want to make it in numbers on an industrial scale. And they were very, very good at that. And the designs changed slightly, so they're easier for manufacture, for T0 to T3 assembly, all these sort of things. Um, and again, the British didn't adapt that much. Um, we did. We had brands like Smith's who did it, um, but they finally died out in the early, well, I think it was 71 when the quartz revolution. And the other big thing, obviously, which people, it's easy to forget about, but we went through two world wars. Right. Uh, and if you could build a firing pin, for, I mean, sort of movement for a, you know, uh, for a watch, you could probably build a part for a rifle, a, a, you know, an airplane, a tank, whatever was needed at the time. And, and then there's the depression and the Second World War. And, and it was a fight for survival. And the Swiss um, did a remarkably good job making watches for everyone, didn't matter, irrespective of country remember, and remaining quite independent. So uh, um, they did a very good job. And they are very, very, very good at marketing with it. Now entered Nick and Giles English. So your goal from the outset was really to bring watch manufacturing back to Britain. Yeah, we, do you know, um, so we set, um, so when we started, um, uh, you know, and I remember, I remember how it happened. I mean, Giles and I, for our sins, we both thought we were going to go into the Air Force and there's a three-year waiting list to join the Air Force um, to fly anyway um, after this, you know, going through it at university. And um, for our sins, I went into the, into the city for three years. So I said to my dad, I've got to do something semi-constructive. Um, and when, when we, we left that, um, we uh, literally had this sort of uh, passion to, to try and understand what was, what was, what, you know, what was needed to, to build a watch brand. You know, what, you know, we went to Switzerland with a blank sheet of canvas um, and we tried to understand what it would take to to build a watch the first time and it was a lot of you know there's a lot of secrecy a lot of unknowns involved with watchmaking and it was us going out there to drill try and really discover what was what was needed to do it um and we're still learning to this day you know if you look at what we we're doing in the last few years it's um a chunk of it's been with the help of switzerland um, but finding the right people are willing to share this ip and and we're absolutely adamant we have this sort of intellectual property in the UK, um, but again, there's a, still a, a chunk more still needed to do. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a no mean undertaking really. You know, today the world's best luxury watch brands are clamoring to deck our wrists in aviation inspired timepieces that not only serve as reliable companions up in the sky, but also look dashing down on earth too. IWC, Breitling, Timex, Rolex, Montblanc and many other have pilot watches. What made you think that you can create another aviation-inspired watch brand that would attract a new generation of buyers? Yeah, that's a good question, actually. Um, do you know, I think, Scott, I hate to say this, but I think the, the real answer deep down was we believed in the product ourselves, but we honestly did not know how big the market would be or wouldn't be. Um, it was, we felt that a lot of watches, this is, in the late, well, the early 2000s. So this is, we felt a lot of watches were coming, especially pilot watches were coming quite fashion orientated. There's a sort of real trend for oversized watches. And a lot of the military were wearing watches with quartz movements in them. So you'd have these luxury brands that were making mechanical watches, but also making quartz watches. And these are the ones being used by pilots. So I don't think pilots and, and the military 
really had a true understanding of what it meant to have a mechanical watch as opposed to a, a watch with a battery. And, and we, Giles and I, looked at this and said, actually, you know, there, you know if, if I was to wear a watch to hand down through the generations, you'd want something that's going to survive. You know, a mechanical watch, there's something very, very special about it. There's 86 odd thousand seconds in a day and you're producing something which is a mechanical device on your wrist, the most mechan uh, accurate mechanical device on the planet plus or th minus, you know, five seconds, whatever it is. And it's going to last forever as long as you look after it. And, and we went in with that approach. And, you know, our business plan originally, we didn't really know how many we were going to sell. But I think we captured this um, at a time where a lot of these pilots were sort of being force-fed um, quartz watches. We suddenly mm -hmm. said, actually, we're producing something which is, is quite different. It's, it's designed to, to last forever. And, you know, it is more expensive, but... Uh, you know, your grandchildren will be able to enjoy it as much as you have. And that was, a, I guess, a bit of it. But the other bit was the look and feel. And we had this love of vintage watches, which, whilst beautiful, were obviously due to the age, were less reliable. And it's about, again, producing a watch which you could pick up in 20 years' time and it still look lovely on the wrist and not a fashion item. I think those are the two main things that we sort of looked at. So when you launched the brand, where did you recruit the watchmakers from to assemble the timepieces and how much of the timepieces were created from components made in the UK when you launched? Uh, that's a very good question as well. Um, you know, when we started, it was incredibly difficult to try to find watchmakers in the UK. Um, you know, in an industry that had all but died out, other, other than the service industry in this country, um, you know, where do you find a watchmaker who knows how to set up a watch manufacturing facility, uh, assembly facility, etc.? It was really, really difficult. So we had this sort of approach where, um, first of all, we recruited two brilliant guys who's still with us, um, who actually originally came from the Swatch Group with Amiga and companies like that. And um, we started our first two years of, Bremont production first of all we had a little workshop in Switzerland there just wasn't the resource or the uh, know-how in the UK to produce watches of the quality we wanted and because we wanted any good watchmaker independent watchmaker to take the back off of Bremont and go actually this is a beautifully made watch you know we only make chronometers we only make mechanical watches and that was really important but you had to find the right team obviously to do this so to begin with that wasn't in the UK so the first two years of our production, you can actually see a, uh, if you, you find a Bremer watch with Swiss made on the front, um, that indicates, you know, the reason for that is, you know, buying um, a lot of the know-how in Switzerland. They're being assembled there by a very, very small team we put together. But then as time went on, um, we recruited these first two watchmakers with a you know, huge amount of spirit experience between them. We learned how to do all the assembly in the UK and after sales. Um, and they gradually trained up a team below them to do that. But then, you know, it's been a, it was a sort of picking off parts that we could sort of achieve with time. So the next, next uh, milestone was case manufacturing. That wasn't really till 2014 um, that we managed to do that. And, uh, you, know, you know, we machine these cases from Bard to incredibly small tolerances. I truly believe, you know, some of the nicest cases made in the world because we, we, we take it so incredibly seriously. Um, but again, when you started, it was how on earth are you going to be able to do that? And no help really from the Swiss, because why would you? Um, right. And so we had to get people from the Formula One industry, from um, medical, from... And eventually we had a bit of help from the Swiss with 
you know, some of the finishing, but only because we bought some pretty expensive machines and we said to them, look, you've got to show us how to use these things. Um, and then it sort of went on from there. Um, but uh, throughout this whole period, we've been training up people. So we have an apprentice scheme internally. So, you know, I was, if you look at the, our watch technicians, for example, they come from a whole variety of, of backgrounds. It might be, um, you know, industrial design. It may be, um, uh, you know, we've got a, some from bomb disposal. We've got someone from jewelry making. We've got someone from graphic design. You know, mm. they come from people straight from school. And it's, you know, we have bench tests. We test people and they're, ability to to deal with small things and put them together and incredible uh, attention to detail and, and we train from there and we're the only company sort of members of the British School of Watchmaking along with a big sort of watch giants and we take it very very seriously. So how did you get global suppliers to care about the Bremont brand? Um, it, from um, relationships to begin with for sure and um, you know going out there and making the effort and and really trying to ensure that they knew who you were. We weren't just sort of a faceless brand. And so relationships to begin with. And then as time goes, went on, um, you, know, you know, suppliers could see the volumes are increasing. And so you, you did become a, a more important account to them, like all businesses, like all supply chains. And then on the machinery side, quite interesting enough, you know, you don't get a huge amount of help when you buy one machine, but when you buy six machines, you can actually demand a bit more help. And I think that's how it's happened. And uh, um, but also, you know, there is a bit of luck involved. We found some incredible uh, forward thinking and also semi disruptive teams in Switzerland of young, incredibly talented watchmakers who have been willing to help us because they see it not just as a domain from the Swiss. So we've had this amazing kind of, for example, this movement we've been making. We've had a huge amount of help from Switzerland, but also we've got some incredibly talented people in the UK. So it's just a fusion of anglo-swiss um working together in the uk which is which is wonderful yeah so how do you differentiate bremont in a crowded field um i think the number one thing is um the the, the british bit is a, is a big thing right um but but british by itself doesn't mean a huge amount if the quality is not there so um the biggest thing for us was actually as i was mentioning earlier for for anyone to look at a watch with any knowledge and <clears throat> look at a Bremen watch and go, actually, that is absolutely beautifully made. Finish, case design, um, the product has to speak for itself without a shadow of a doubt and compete with the best in the world. Um, so the, that, was, that was very, very important. I think we, we put a sort of stake in the ground and, and authenticity was always going to play a big part. So um, anyone who's interested in the brand can come and literally come to Henley kick the tires and see everything from a case being made from the bar of metal going in to, to movements, movement parts, jewels being set, movements being put together, watches being tested and put together. You know, it's a huge undertaking. And in a lot of countries and a lot of brands, there are a lot of smoke and mirrors and you don't quite know what's going on. And I think this is this um, openness, this uh, auditability and traceability is absolutely key. And that's one of the ways we've tried to differentiate ourselves. So who are you making watches for today? Like, who is your customer? What is the sweet spot? Ah, sweet spot is interesting. You know, I, I originally, I think we, we, we set out saying that you're going to get 30 to 50 year old men are going to buy our watches who, uh, you know, a certain demographic, obviously they have to 
have enough money to buy one of the watches and also the interest. But then we quite quickly realized that actually, you know, for example, 20% of our business is military, mm-hmm. um, which is a big chunk. So we've done several hundred, you know, I think it's like 450 or 400 something uh, different military units around the world now, several times over for many of them. So that's a unique market in itself, which you can't market to. That's grown very, very organically. But also what's lovely over the last sort of decade, you'll, you know, we have a number of our own boutiques um, around the world and we sell yeah. through a lot of lovely retailers. And you'll have a 21-year-old coming in with their parents for their 21st. And that's very, very special because it's their first, you know, proper uh, luxury mechanical watch. And then you also have that 85-year-old man who comes in saying that this is a watch I've really wanted for a long time. And, and, it, and, and it sort of slightly blows our mind in terms of the, the demographic. And, and also more recently women as well, because we, you know, we do make beautiful watches for, for ladies as, as well as men. Yeah. And luxury analog watches are making a comeback and young affluent consumers are seeking simplicity and personalization and transparency when they're choosing their luxury timepieces. So how is Bremen winning over these younger watch buyers? I think that point you just made there, the transparency is really, really key. I think, um, you know, uh, they do want to know how the supply chain has been built up. They want to know where the packaging, where the diamonds, if you are doing ladies' watches or the, you know, the uh, the leather or whatever you're using, they are genuinely interested. Um, and they 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 want to know that it's all being not being shipped from countries where people aren't, you know, looking after staff welfare. And um, and they can see that at Bremont. You can come along and see every single thing pretty much. And I think that's, that means a lot to them. So that's, and that's, I think, something that uh, the younger generations have quite rightly and, 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 you know, been looking into more than perhaps some of the older generations. And I think that's great for the business as a whole. I think, uh, you know, we also appeal to a market where, you know, my dad's worn this watch and my mother's worn this watch for, for many, many years. And, right. you know, I'm going into a board meeting now and everyone's wearing the same watch. I want to wear something slightly different, a bit more unique and a bit more me. Um, and that's where Bremont comes in. But, you know, we're not, we're making, you know, 10,000 watches a year. We're not making a million watches a year. And I think that's a, that's a big differentiator as well. Those people who want their own uh, personality to come out in the choice. Yeah, and these young buyers also expect sustainability to be part of any product, including watches. Many companies marketed new watches with recycling, upcycling, or sustainability partnership stories this year. How is Braemont embracing sustainability in the manufacturing process? You know, Scott, it's so incredibly important. Um, and, you know, we have an aim for, for the business to be carbon neutral um, at some point. Um, when I say at some point, there's still a lot of work to do, but we've had some proper carbon audits going on um, which is very very exciting the whole new facility was designed um, with sustainability in mind you know it's all got a living roof on top Um, it's set low into the countryside it's got uh, incredible insulation the way the building's heated it's you know heat from the machines um, is passed around the building and filtered and um, it is you know as sustainable as you really can have for a factory of that size and and then it will be, yeah, you know, us looking into suppliers and you know packaging and all the other bits that go with it. But also, what's so lovely, Scott, is you know, manufacturing in the UK. We'll have a bar of steel. We're not shipping things continually backwards and forwards as much as you know many of our competitors are because it's all happening here on place. It's about local sourcing. 
we have this thing internally called Operation Bulldog, which is, sounds a bit corny, but it's um, basically if we can find a supplier who will supply us for something we don't make ourselves in the UK, we will try and find that supplier um, because why have it shipped from Asia or wherever you, you might have to go otherwise? And, and I think this sort of more localised sourcing is going to become more and more important with time. And, and we take that quite seriously. In fact, we have one guy who does nothing but that. In, in the company. I want to rewind a little bit. Uh, coronavirus caught many global watch brands entirely unprepared, while other forward-thinking companies fared much better during the worldwide shutdown by accelerating their e-commerce and digital strategies. What were the early days of the pandemic like within Bremont, and how quickly were you able to change your strategy? Ah, you, you know, I mean, I'd be lying if, um, you know, there weren't times right at the beginning where it wasn't quite scary <laughs> because <laughs> I don't think anyone knew. You know, hindsight's a very powerful thing, isn't it? And right, I think, right. Um, and we all know, oh, yeah, well, we did this, that, and the other. But um, there's a couple of things. One is, you know, we sell through our own stores. Um, we sell through retailers, as I was mentioning earlier. They all closed, you know, overnight. They all shut. You know, we've got stores in Melbourne, for example. And I mean, I think they've had sort of 250, oh, I know, more than that, you know, several hundred days of lockdown since the game again and it's it's you know, it's really hard to run a business like that um but at the same time we're we're you know of a size where we could adapt quite quickly we have a direct to consumer presence you know with the military and other bits so so that kept us going and we made the most of that but we also used that time quite wisely for a couple of things one was um uh you know we had this new facility which we've only been in uh, sort of nine months or so ten months and it was uh, okay. We de- it was delayed through coronavirus, but also it gave us time to really move things across and get things working slickly there. Um, so that time was certainly wasn't wasted. And then we, you know, we built a new website which launched last week. We put a lot of time into econ and like many other businesses have. Um, so we certainly didn't sit around idly. But it was it was scary at the beginning. And I think um, anyone who says it wasn't was. Is slightly lying because right. we just didn't know what was going to happen, did we? Yeah, nobody's prepared for that. And as a founder, what have you learned from this crisis? I think you, you've got to look at the, the longer term a little bit. It's very easy to have knee-jerk reactions, isn't it? And say, oh my gosh, we've got to do this. We've got to um, you know, do this with the business. We've got to mothball this. And, and you realize, actually, just keep your calm. You know, I, th- I think having really good relationships with with banks and things like that makes a huge difference you know we had incredible support from uh hsbc for example when we, we you know when the, everything hit and we sat down with them and they understood what we we're trying to achieve we we were sensible with costs we you know we cut marketing unfortunately we have to do that but the business kept on going and i, I think keeping a cool head was absolutely important and we'd have this daily updates with the sort of the board of where we were what we could do um so we certainly weren't at home sunny ourselves and furlough it, it you know it, it just wasn't like that and what was lovely is we had the right staff um at bremont who also you know took up the chalice to try and make things work and every you could see the people who had were had the sort of entrepreneurial streak to them and they were working out ways of you know, how we could, could we deliver watches to potential customers how could we you know have this uh effectively click and collect going on at our boutiques, which couldn't be open for to the general public, but you could open them for people making appointments. So there's, so there's a whole load of things that go on, but yeah, try and keep your cool. That was the number one tip, yeah. I'd say. 
That's a good tip. And it's interesting in times of crisis, consumers seem to gravitate to brands that speak to the values of timelessness and meaning and reliability. Have you observed these consumption patterns among your clientele? Yeah, I think um, yeah, I think what we all saw, which was quite interesting, um, and and I and I don't think anyone really predicted this. I think if if you'd said to anyone, look, there's going to be a global pandemic, loads of people are going to be on furlough, you're going to be working from home if you're lucky, you, it's going to be all this sort of thing going on. You'd have thought, oh my gosh, this is this is going to be the biggest recession in history. Wouldn't right. I, I would have thought this, and I, you know, I have a you know, city background, and I still would have thought that. But actually, what you realized is, again, people adapted, they work from home, they, they, a lot of businesses actually boomed in this period. I, you know, I, I feel for those in the leisure and hospitality sector, but the, a lot of the other sectors did well. And a lot of our clients are in those sectors. So they did have money. So mm-hmm. as long as you looked after them, and we kept the communication lines open, you know, there, there were still customers of ours at, during and at the end, which were very, very lucky and extremely grateful to them for that. You touched upon this earlier. Raymond has a strong relationship with the British military. Can you talk about that long run you've had collaborating with the military? And what, what percentage of the business, the total business is, uh, is with the military? Yeah, I mean, total business is, is probably about 20, 25% actually. Right. And it's something which, um, you know, we're very, very proud of. And there's relationships that have been built up there over many, many, many years. It's something you can't really market to, but it's, it's something which it does mean a huge amount. We, we, we try and do as much as we can for them as well. You know, we've got a second stage of armed forces covenant and we try and employ people ex-military if we can. And um, there's a lot we do with them there. And then, you know, two or three years ago, or three or four years ago now, God, you know, I can't tell now with everything that's happened, but, but <laughs> yeah. probably three or four years ago, we had, we were, awarded a contract for Her Majesty's Armed Forces to supply, um, you know, the sort of higher end timepieces uh, with their, you know, with their IP on them. So all of the heraldic uh, crests from the Royal Navy, the, you know, Army and the Air Force and being their official supplier um, was quite a special thing in the history of Bremel. But we've always had this lovely, lovely relationship. Uh, you know, I think it sort of stems from Giles and I having dipped our toe in literally um, for you know a handful of years at the, at the university days and and just having some close relationships you know Giles and I did a lot of flying with people who are in the air force and elsewhere and and uh, we've got an incredible team who have built built that side of the business which um, is based on loyalty but also a real appreciation of what we try and do and we're not you know we don't do it for marketing purposes it's done um, because we genuinely share that passion you know and I think that comes across. So about six years ago, Raymond first announced a new partnership with fellow English luxury brand Jaguar for a series of watches. How did that initial collaboration come about? And you've done a few uh, together, a few collections together, I believe. Yeah, we're very lucky. We have um, got a few wonderful partnerships, whether it's, you know, Williams Formula One or mm-hmm. English Rugby or, um, you know, Rolls-Royce Aerospace. And there's some really lovely partnerships we've had, but one of the and uh, Martin Baker, of course, who make all ejection seats. But but Jaguar were, or Jaguar, as I think they say in, in, uh, in America. <laughs> Jaguar. Jaguar, right. Jaguar. I can't, I can't, I, can't, I always get it wrong. They, um, uh, it is something which actually the relationship's gone on for longer than that. So we probably about, uh, when was it, 2012, we, we started working with um, 
uh, Ian Callum, and he approached us. We got mm. this call, and Ian Callum was the chief designer of Jaguar, and before that, he for for a number of years was the chief designer of Aston Martin, where he designed the, the DB7, DB9, the Vanquish, and some incredible cars like that before going to Jaguar. And he rang us up, and they're doing this incredible concept car for their 75th anniversary, and it was um, actually the, the car that was seen. If you watch, I think Spectre. There's an amazing uh, car scene in that where you've got the, you know, obviously him driving, James Bond driving the right. Aston Martin, being, being, being chased by this incredibly good-looking car um, behind. And that was the, the Jaguar XK75. And that was, um, you know, is an incredible piece of engineering. And it had sort of turbofan engines running the hybrid, you know, uh, battery-operated electric motors. And it's just amazing piece of technology. And they approached us and said, look, will you design, help us design the cockpit for us in terms of the dial layout and other bits? And we got involved there. We got a call, to, uh, went along to their Coventry development office. And there there was this amazing car in clay, still at that stage, and all these mood boards with Bremer watches on. And it was a complete honor, considering we'd only been going you know, five years or so, five, six years. And we really hit it off within. And that was the start of, and his design team of, of many things to come. And I guess that was cemented into a, a proper um, watch partnership um, mm -hmm. later on and including things that they did, these amazing uh, cars, con continuation uh, lightweight Jaguars. And we did some watches for those. And, and Giles and I love our old cars as well. We occasionally sort of try and race them badly and, and uh, maintain them where we can. And so we have this passion for old cars and it's sort of, again, it's, when you when you love these things, it, it's very easy, isn't it, to to get uh, um, into it in, in a lot of detail. You know, some brands have experimented with connected watches, but Bremont has not. Why is that? We, you know, I think they're two very very different things. I think um, different to the extent where you know a lot of our clients wear both. A lot of them won't wear connected. I think we're not a technology company in that sense. We're not mm -hmm. an electronic technology, you know, technology company. We're a technology company in terms of, you know, we've come up with some amazing patents and innovation in mechanical watch design, but that's very, very different from trying to compete with Apple. I think you're, to do it, anything on the, that side, first of all, you need the passion to do it. And Giles and I don't really share that passion for, for electronics. Um, in the same way as perhaps some other companies would, but also you're competing with these giants who are just bloody good at what they do. And, right. and the third thing for us is we've always had this thing where you're building something for life and it's not disposable technology. You know, a Bremont watch will last you for decades and decades, forever, for a far outlast the, 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 you if you look after it. Whereas this technology is, it is disposable. You buy one and for, you know, a year and a half, two years later, you're, you're bidding it for the next thing. And that's not the best thing, I don't believe, for the environment either. And But it is very clever technology, and I think they become more of a health thing. So, uh, you know, and I also, you know, it's enough being on your phone most of the time, isn't it, without having it on your wrist the whole time as well. But uh, but I can see the attraction very much so why people do like them. And uh, But I just think there's room for, for two very different forms of telling the time. You just recently opened uh, the wing. Did you just outgrow the old facility? And what does the wing say about Braymont's long-term goal? Yeah, no, of course. I mean, we first of all, anyone listening, if they ever want to come there, so we're about an hour west of London. If anyone would like to come and have a look around, we're Henley-on-Thames on, on the river. 
Um, we'd be absolutely delighted to show anyone around if they are interested in, in what we're doing. Um, I am. Yeah, you must come along, Scott. It's, uh, it's quite interesting because you can see the whole process um, uh, from, the, from the cases and the movements, everything sort of being made there, which is quite fun. But no, we, what we did, we, we outgrew the last places. So we were actually in three different locations and we had manufacturing of cases and parts in one area about 20 minutes away and marketing and we had you know one location we had um uh operations and and then actually it became a bit like minecraft every time we ran out of yeah. space we'd dump another <laughs> sort of porter cabin in the field and and it just got um it just got but we were we knew this was going to happen and actually the whole process from start to finish of building the new facility took five years you know from mm. design and um design with the architects local architects and getting planning and actually we're very lucky we had some great support from the local um, and regional councils um, who all saw it as a positive thing for the local community so we're very 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 lucky but and then we're delayed by a you know a year or so with covid so you know right. you can imagine building materials and everything like that became a bit tricky but we know we're so pleased to be there now and it's and having everything under one roof just operationally makes such a difference you know just people being able to talk, be able to see each other face to face without driving 20 minutes. And um, so we're very, very proud and pleased to be in our new home. What's the uh, production capacity right now? So we, we as I mentioned, we probably make uh, just over 10,000 watches a year, but the, the facility is designed to be able to produce um, a lot more than that. It, you know, it's, it's incredibly, we're incredibly lucky. The chap who helped design inside um, the facility, you know, he had set up 54 different workshops for uh, Richmond over the years. Mm -hmm. So he knew exactly about the workflow. So from that bar of metal, that piece of metal that comes through to making a watch, you know, there's a, it's, it's incredible sort of uh, lesson in logistics and operational workflow. And it's, um, yeah, and, and we're very proud of it. It, ma it makes life so much easier. Oh yeah, I can imagine. I recently visited the Braymont Boutique here in New York, uh, the one on Madison Avenue. It's a beautiful store with an amazing selection of watches, lots of memorabilia with, of course, the Instagram worthy, you know, aircraft ejection seat made by Martin Baker. Um, so you opened it back in 2015 as part of your plan to grow the brand in the American market. What has been your experience in telling Braymont's story to the American consumer and how is that different from other markets? Actually, uh, so you know, I think if we knew the answer to that completely, I'd you know, I <laughs> very well be twenty times the size. It is a, it's a really difficult uh, answer to give in in one go. But I, I, first of all, we went into the U.S. market in two thousand and eight, and the the success we had was very much working with some really lovely, caring, and knowledgeable local, almost family jewelers. So we started in New York um, with a uh, actually a, a company called uh, a shop called Kenjo. I remember them very well. Mm -hmm. And then taught, we went into a few Torno stores, but we we ended up yeah working with some really lovely sort of regional stores. And we had a, a very um, a decent, uh, a very talented U.S. manager who would go around and really motivate and teach the the different staff in these stores about the brand and what we represented. But it's it's exhausting, you know. America, you forget, you know, is such a big place. What the Californians think of Bremel is very different from uh, what those in you know those in Texas or Ohio or wherever else do. So it's just a very different mindset. And I ended up living in LA for a few months 
really trying to help put it together as well. And that helped. You know, the other big part of the market for us was, was the um, travel retail. So we had a sort of 25 doors selling our, our product in the Caribbean, which has done very, very well up till COVID. Um, it was obviously the cruise industry's been put on ISA for a while. But no, the, 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 the message for us, you know, the, the, the difficulty has always been marketing spend. And, you know, we look at the giants like Rolex in terms of how much they spend. It dwarfs everyone else, you know, mm. put together almost. And, and to get a message out consistently to, to the Americas in a, on, a, um, on, a, on, a, on a regional basis is incredibly difficult and very, very expensive. Um, so what we did um, early on, uh, there's a couple of things. One is we're very early adopters of social media back in uh, you know, 2009, 10, you know, with a lot of luxury brands just weren't doing it. Right. So that really, really helped. And we're pretty active on forums and things, uh, which are so commonplace today. But also, we, we, you know, Giles and I are out there are huge amounts. So we, you will literally be going, doing event after event and telling the story because you can't really do it any other way. And, and then through osmosis, you know, from people traveling and it gradually grew into our, you know, it's our second biggest market now. What does British luxury mean to you? Uh, do you know, I think the whole word luxury full stop is is an interesting, um, interesting word in itself. And, you know, I think luxury has often been associated with something that costs a lot of money, but it's it's a lot more than that. It's about craftsmanship. Um, it's customer experience. It's about everything that goes around that. And, you know, you can have a, I believe, a luxury item that doesn't necessarily cost a lot. I think scarcity is is part of it i think if um you're buying into something which is so incredibly ubiquitous is it luxury uh, but it's it's for me it's about craftsmanship and having something where a lot of thought a lot of detail has gone into it and where the quality is is absolutely second to none um, what about british a, luxury british luxury for 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 me is is exactly that so it's a lot about the design i think we're incredibly good in this country at design we're also we're, we're incredibly good at taking a concept which has been around for years um, or decades or centuries and, and changing it. Well, you know, look at our Bremen cases. You know, they're very unlike uh, most watch cases. Most watch cases are two-part cases where you have the, the case and the case back. We went for this more of a three-piece case where the torrance is incredibly tight, but you can change materials. You can do, and they just look almost like the lugs are melting over the case and. And that was done through, you know, British engineering and, 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 and trying to differentiate ourselves from, from others out there. But also that sort of tenacity to make things work. We're pretty good at this country and, and we're not, you know, we're making 10,000. We're not making a million. Relics make a million watches a year. Um, so we've got a lot of catching up. So there's a huge amount of human interaction that goes into our, our watches as well. Nick, my final question, which I ask all my guests, is the luxury item question. So if right. you were stranded, so if you were stranded on a deserted island and you could only have one luxury item with you, what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of air transportation or any transportation or anything <laughs> that requires mobile service. It's you, a couple of palm trees, the sand and the sea. What would that one luxury item be? Well, assuming assuming you had a knife or something and that wasn't your luxury item. Because I think that you'll be a bit silly not to have one of those. Then um, I think if it had to be luxury, I think 
luxury is is a lovely addition to you know your daily rigors of life i think you know it might have to be a guitar actually i think sitting there and uh, acoustic guitar acoustic guitar strumming a few tunes would be a really lovely thing to have and actually it'd get you through some of the highs and lows of the day and that would be a luxury there's nothing like picking up a guitar when you're uh, Giles and I used to have been in a really bad band for about 30 years and <laughs> I don't think our repertoire has really improved over the years but uh, we get so much enjoyment out of it so I think that would have to be it which but then, you know, if you're trying to get off the island and you're trying to find your way back home, you definitely need that luxury watch as well. Otherwise, yeah, I was going to uh, say, I'm, sure, I'm assuming that you had probably had a Brayman watch on. On your wrist, anyway. exactly. Because it is rather essential for, for navigation and figuring out. Nick English, co-founder of Braymont Watch Company. Thank you so much for joining me on the Luxury Item and good luck with everything. Scott, thank you so very much indeed. Really, really, really appreciate your, your time and uh, lovely chatting. That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.